Sentinels of Freedom is a national nonprofit organization that supports severely wounded post 9-11 veterans complete their higher education with its Bridge for Education scholarships. Veterans receive comprehensive personalized support, financial assistance, financial planning, and mentoring to achieve success in their post-military careers. We treat this as an investment, not a charity. What they'll bring to communities and the economy across our nation in their after-service careers is an invaluable fact and our return on investment. Our donors can take great pride in the fact that they are helping these veterans who served our nation honorably and sacrificed so much to reach their objective of self-sufficient lives. Now, here's Mike Conklin, the founder, chairman, and CEO of Sentinels of Freedom Scholarship Foundation. Good morning, this is Mike Conklin, chairman of Sentinels of Freedom Scholarship Foundation. The foundation we developed to support severely wounded and injured veterans, post 9-11 veterans across the nation. We have uh, somewhere over 700 of them now across the nation. They're doing fantastic things in their careers. Uh, we find that they also, in mean, the 85 to 90 percentile of them, are doing volunteering work in their community. And you, you ask a question, wait a second, these guys have done enough. Why do they do that? Well, our slogan is veterans never stop serving, and they are proof of that. So we have invited uh, a lot of them to come on the podcast. We call Veterans Never Stop Serving today. And uh, throughout every week, we do two or three, or try to do two or three. Depending on everybody's schedule, it's a little tough, but it uh, works out pretty good in these podcasts for us. Gets the word out that we owe a huge debt of gratitude to our veterans, but we can do more than say, thank you for your service. Every community can do more than that. And so that's really what our program is all about, is to get our veterans in our program through their education and onto their careers. And their careers widely range from you know, medical to legal to finance, you name it, in almost every business discipline, we have a sentinel, as we call them, sentinels. And so today we're honored to have Chris Lammy, a United States Air Force, uh, served 10 years. Uh, he's a tech sergeant, E-6, and uh, worked uh, his last uh, deployments with uh, special operations, has been to Iraq, Afghanistan, and came to us, met Chris back in Washington, D.C., had a good talk with him and asked him if he'd be interested in joining us and letting us help him kind of across the finish line, uh, let us walk at his side. And that takes a certain amount of trust uh, on both sides. Our, we have to trust that the individual we're investing in, we don't call this a charity, is ready uh, to move forward in their lives. And they have to trust us that what we say is going to happen. Our support is not going to go away. Uh, and so we brought Chris on. Uh, he already had his bachelor's degree, which he got in service, and which is unusual, not uncom not totally uncommon, but it's most of our military members don't take advantage of the in-service the tuition that is available to them. Chris did, got his undergraduate, and then went on to his Juris Doctorate and, and has graduated from that. So we'll let Chris tell his story. And Chris, great to see you. You look healthy and strong. And happy. I'm all of those things. And you get, get your big dog behind you. I do. I got a couple of them back there. That one's Molly. Molly, I actually am a dog trader now. Um, yeah. 
that, but that's uh, one of the dogs that went through my program. She's fantastic. Awesome. But yeah, I, I kind of want to start by saying thank you. Just the since most sincere thank you I can give, not only to you, Mike, but to your entire team. Adela, Samantha, the breadth of what you guys offer goes far beyond financial support while myself and these Sentinels are in school. The wealth of resources that you guys, that you can give to us and to these incoming Sentinels is, is unbelievable. The, the, and, and, and more than that, the mindset that we are here to help, you are here to help. I remember I was in DC and one of the board members, Stacey Hattica found out that I was there and she came and she met me and she brought me out to dinner, brought me to a beautiful dinner and gave me her cell phone number and said, look, while you're here, if you need anything at all, you let me know. And, and that's how everybody has been. It's yeah, been and, and Stacey is, a, is an attorney with Hogan Lovells, the largest law firm in Washington, D.C. and just a wonderful person. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful person. I'm really, I'm blessed to be able to not only to meet her, but every one of you that I had an opportunity. I had an opportunity to come out to California and see you guys. And it yeah. was being a Sentinel Freedom uh, was life changing. And I, I use those words very purposefully. <clears throat> and um, so with that, I'll kind of, I guess I can go ahead and jump in and, and, and start with. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Tell us a little bit about your life. It's been a little bit of a ride. I mm -hmm. um, So after I'm, I grew up on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, uh, Long Beach, and um, mm -hmm. Hurricane Katrina hit in 2005. I had just had a daughter. My first daughter was born a, a couple months before that. Katrina hit and, and kind of just threw our world into a loop. Mm -hmm. Um, and didn't really know what I was going to do. So I, my, my wife at the time and I decided that the Air Force was the right thing to do. We joined the Air Force and we were uh, stationed in Japan. And so without going too far into all of the things that go into the military in a 10 year career, I was a security forces member, which is military police. And then after about five years, I transferred to a canine handler. Mm -hmm. I deployed to Iraq twice, to Afghanistan once, Jordan once. And then a couple other, a lot of little small trips here and there I deployed. I wasn't special forces, but I deployed with two right. special forces. One, it's numerous times, including a, a five months trip to Afghanistan with the Navy SEALs. And then I just did stuff that Navy SEALs do. And a lot of my injuries, physically I, I was hurt, but the mental injuries were, were really what followed me for a number of years. So after about nine years, about the nine year mark in the Air Force, it was that time where I'm like, okay, am I going to do the 20 or am I, am I getting out? I had finished my bachelor's degree, like I said, and I knew that I wanted to continue my education, but really had no idea what I wanted to do. I also knew, I, I figured at that time, like, okay, my, my body is, my body and my mind are, I need to get out. I need some help and I need to, I had, so the, there was one event that really kind of triggered a changing point in my career and where I was like, no, I need to leave. I need some help. We had an op order for an exercise, which an op order is something you do. It's everybody gets together and they plan out step-by-step step what the operation is going to be prior to that operation. And it was on base. It was in an exercise. We weren't going anywhere, but sitting in that auditorium, there was about 300 of us all, all together. And I was sitting in the bleachers and I had what to me felt like a flashback. I had an anxiety attack or a flashback, whatever it was. I was frozen. I was panicked. I was, I had started crying and, and sweating uncontrollably. I couldn't move. So I just sat there until all of this was done and everybody left. And I sat there and I tried really hard to just not call attention to myself. And I left and uh, went to where my wife at the time was, Shana. She was working on base and, and pulled up to where she was, got her car and just broke down. And, and at that point I was like, look, I need some help. Yeah. Mental health was still kind of a, not necessarily a bad word at back in, in that time. 
but it wasn't necessarily as open as it is today. It was still considered, at least in my, in my realm, it was considered a weakness that you needed to go help, get help for your mental health. And now that was a wrong mentality. I was wrong to think that. And we are, we're seeing the changes of, the, of that mindset now, which is great. So I did, I went and I started seeing some, getting some mental help. I spent 40 days in inpatient rehab before I left the service. Uh, that helped significantly. Uh, one of the things that really caught my attention, however, was the, the medication aspect. Uh, the medication that I was on, where some of them did help, there were a lot, there were so many side effects. And for every positive, there was an equal or worse negative. And so fast forward, I, I got out of the Air Force a couple of years later. I was, I was attending law school at LHU. After my first year of law school, I was in D.C. I had the opportunity to spend the summer working on Capitol Hill with Student Veterans of America. Right. And that's about the time that I connected with you guys a little bit before that. So you guys helped finance that as well and set up numerous things that allowed me to be able to do that. So again, thank you for that. That's where I met Stacey also. But during this time, this was, again, kind of the peak of my mental health struggles. And so during my last couple of weeks, I, I just didn't know if I was ever going to get better. I was, I was hurt. And I, I rationalized to myself that my wife and my daughters would be better off without me. So I made a plan. I knew what I was going to do. I called my wife. I called my daughters and, and kind of in, in my own way was, was saying goodbye. Mm. And, and so I did talk to my daughters. And as I was talking to them and hearing them talk to me, I knew it's like, oh, these girls need me um, yeah. and they don't need this Chris, they need this Chris, the one that's sitting in front of me right now. Um, so at that point, I, I hung up the phone and I took all the pills that I had from the VA. I had all my medication. And I put them in a Ziploc bag and I put them in my suitcase and I just stopped cold turkey. Mm. So I went back, I, I came back home to the VA. I made an appointment with my psychiatrist and I told him, I said, look, I was like, I know you're not supposed to do this. I know you're not supposed to cut cold turkey. I know these are some, <laughs> there can be some dangerous side effects come along with it. But I was done. Like I was going to, I was going to do it. And I, I'll never forget. He, he sat back in his chair. He's this real quiet old man. And he sat back and he folded his hands. He said, sorry to hear that. That's a really bad side effect of those drugs. And he, he kind of saw my face. I was like, I said, sir, I was like, I'm seeing you for depression. I'm seeing you for anxiety, post-traumatic stress and bipolar. I was like, and, and you gave me drugs that are, that have a side effect of suicidal ideations and suicidal thoughts. Sure. Yeah. He's like, look, I get it. He's like, I get it. He's like, but we just don't have any way of understanding how these drugs are going to affect people. So at that moment right there, that was at that moment inside my head, sitting in that office at the VA in Hammond, Louisiana, it dawned on me, it just light bulb moment. No one's coming to help you. If you want to feel better, you are going to have to find a way to feel better. <laughs> you can continue doing the therapy, which I did, and you can continue reaching out to people and, and getting the support that I did. But if I wanted to feel better. It was up to me. And so I kind of used the resources I had at LSU Law and started researching. What were some of the things that people were doing? What were some of the ways that people, not only veterans, but other people that were struggling with post-traumatic stress and anxiety, depression, what were they doing that helped them feel better? And I would start, I just started picking and choosing and finding things that worked for me. It was a very long road. Some days were worse than others, but some days were better than others. Eventually, I started realizing I, I found meditation helped a lot. Meditation was significant in my life. Marijuana helped a lot. It was right at that time where, where marijuana was getting a lot of positive attention. It was being um, decriminalized in a lot of states. <clears throat> a lot of the research was showing very positive. So I, I went to my doctor and I, I found some. 
and I use the medication and, and I use it as a medication and I use the meditation. And after a little while, I found myself smiling again and not that fake smile that we put on in front of everybody to, so that they can't see the real us, but a real true smile. I started having belly laughs again. And most importantly, I started sleeping. And once I started sleeping, everything else has started to fall in place very slowly. And people ask all the time, they see me now, like, what did you do? How did it work? And like, it's little bitty steps. It's little bitty steps here and there. And it's not going to be a gradual thing. You're going to have bumps and you're going to have dips and you're going to have bad days. I see and, right. it, and it's different for everybody. It's not, you can't, yes, one, size, one size doesn't fit all. You're right. Yeah. And, and you got to, and that's, again, that's kind of what that light bulb moment is. I, I am a unique individual and I need to find what works for me in order to feel better. Um, yeah, and and, and it, it's also not just veterans that have these things. There's a lot of people in the civilian world that face depression and some of them can get PTS from traumatic incidents. And so you can't just label PTS as a veteran's, not a disease, but a syndrome, I guess. Disorder. Yeah, you're exactly right. And that's one of the things that I, one of the things that helped me a lot, actually, and I'm glad you brought that up. During my second year of law school, so after my DC experience, I came back and I had two more years and I became very vocal on campus about my struggles and about my mental health and about what I was going through and about what I was trying to get over. And I would stand up or raise my hand in class with 70 people that I, young kids compared to myself. I remember. Yeah. And I would tell my story and it was terrifying. It was terrifying to be that vulnerable in, in front of these people that I barely knew. And I, time after time, I would do it and I would have seven people waiting after, for me after class. Like, I just want to thank you for sharing that. I've been dealing with this and this. And not only did it help them to hear that someone like me was struggling, but it helped me to be able to help them. It was a huge thing. That was a huge turning. And ever since then, I, I, I again, have kind of turned my mindset on being hurt mentally or physically is, is not something to be ashamed of. Getting help is not something to be ashamed of. It, it's a sign of strength. And so I, I continue to encourage my friends and family and anyone who, who will listen that if you're struggling, there is a way to get help. You just have to, you have to put the time in and you have to be patient with yourself and you have to find what works for you. So that was another good turn. So fast forward. Not everybody will understand that, Chris. When I was in the construction business, somebody a claim that they had a bad back and go off on workman's cop or something like that. And we'd all think, what a sissy, suck it up until it happens to you, which it did to me. I was crushed by a tractor on a job site, broke all my ribs, almost cut me in half. And it took me two years to get back on my feet. And, and I remembered those days when we, all the other carpenters and and tradesmen on the job would think, oh yeah, the guy's quitting. He's, he says he has a bad back. He can't work. We didn't understand it. And, and we kind of looked down on him until it happens to you. And then you really understand. So not everybody out there can understand injuries because it's never happened to them. Uh, they can understand it if it's somebody in their close family, because they're with them every day and they can see their pain, but pain, whether mentally or physically is debilitating. It's, it can run you into depression. It's, it's demoralizing in a, in a lot of ways. And you absolutely, you found that path 
and fought through it. And that's a sign of your character. You've got good character traits. So I, I think that you're talking to us today, and that this is, again, the, the beauty of this podcast series is that it's a teaching moment for people. Uh, mm-hmm. And hopefully somebody, yeah, you have to go and ask for help. Don't be afraid to ask for help. It doesn't make you lesser of a person. Absolutely. Uh, and there is help out there. The, and, guy, and, the, the veterans that get in trouble or, or anybody that gets in trouble is they kind of go into a dark place. They won't ask for help. They think there's something that will never get fixed and that they're sick. And then you go to the doctors and the doctors say, yeah, you're sick. And then all of a sudden you start to get into this mindset that you're going to be sick forever. And that's you are absolutely right. Where your, your mindset is a very powerful thing, whether you go, whether you go down or up, it's going to keep going. And, and I love what you just said. I'm going to take it one step further, even outside of pain, just general struggle. Everybody has a struggle in their life. Everybody does. Those struggles, if you do not let them weigh you down, will make you stronger. All of these struggles that I went through taught me a lesson. I know myself very well now as a result of coming from where I was to where I am. And without those struggles, without that pain, I would not have found those parts of me. I would not have understood the strengths that I have if it weren't for those weaknesses and, and trying to figure out how to comp- not compensate, but to overcome those weaknesses and those struggles and those pains. Yeah. Um, so you're right there. If, if you can, and another thing, and in addition to that, kind of the other side, one thing I've learned is people will, are ready when they are ready. Just like me sitting in that office in Hammond, that was my time when I was ready. Okay. I am ready to feel better and it, until you have that feeling of no, no, I don't care what the excuses are. I want to feel better. It's kind of tough. It can yeah. be tough. Again, your mindset can, your mind can just go. It can just take you and go. Well, you're, you've made it through all of that. We got you through law school or you, actually we assisted you carried all the heavy water through that deal. And I know law school isn't easy and your dad will be easy. Yeah. And so I was just going back through your file and I'm looking at it. Yeah. Thinking to myself, we sent this guy can kind of through law school and now he's working with canine and doing dog training. And I'm thinking, how do you make a living at that? And then, and so I, I did a little research and it's amazing that the pet industry in this country is a $106 billion industry. Uh, almost everybody has pets. And then they, they talked about COVID where there was a huge increase in people getting pets with dogs, cats, goldfish, whatever it is. But there's, it is an industry. It's not a fad. And, and it's it, still it, growing. It's, it's, it's growing. Really Yesterday, yeah. it's supposed to grow another 6% by right. 2026. Yeah. And it, at those numbers, that's a lot of. So you're, you're doing a lot of uh, training of dogs for other people. You're making a living. Now tell me how you can, are you planning to kind of leverage that experience into something bigger or are you comfortable right where you are? That's a good question, actually. So. I, you're right. I took a very indirect path. Uh, And after I graduated law school, I had three job offers and turned each one of them down. I just, I knew that there was no way I could be happy doing that job. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a whole lot that goes into it. And that's a whole other conversation. But I just knew that Chris was not going to be happy working as a lawyer. So I took my degree. I I turned down the job offers that I had respectfully and was just looking. Uh, I knew something was going to come up. Uh, I kind of fell backwards into dog training. Um, uh, a very good friend of mine and mentor from the Air Force that was my trainer at, at, at my last duty station happened to live a town over. And he passed away in 2020. 
left the wife and two kids and a dog training business. Mm-hmm. So I went to his widow and told her, like, look, I'll step in. If you want me to just keep it going, let me, I, I will, or I can just keep it afloat until you find somewhere else. And it worked. And I just fell in love with the job. Just absolutely fell in love. I talk, um, I talk, and then a, so I, I talk a lot in public speaking about there's things that we can't explain. And for me, and I'm not overtly religious, but I, I am a believer. I, the only answers that I can give is how did we meet this person? How did this happen? How did this person come to us and say, I want to help? Or how did one of the sentinels come to us? And um, I just back up and say, it's hand of God. And that was, I think, probably an experience you had with your friend. I read the story that um, he went to help the wife and then you found it. Yep. And so... There you are. It's amazing how these things handle. And, and of course, a law degree in, in your background is going to be very helpful in your business, whatever so, you do decide to grow or whatever. You're right. And so and that's where I am right now. So I, I transitioned from there and I actually moved back to Long Beach, Mississippi, my hometown. Mm-hmm. And I started training dogs out of my home. And every single thing. So the, the law, my law degree taught me about the English language, taught me how pliable the English language was. It taught me about body language, how you use your body. It taught me how the importance of tone. It taught me how to convince people, right? It taught me all of these things that are vital in what I'm doing right now. There is no way I would be as as successful as a dog trainer had I not gone to law school. Mm -hmm. And that's obviously not what law school is designed to do. But all of the things that I learned during Mm -hmm. those times, including the confidence that it gave me. I When I began law school, I suffered greatly from the imposter syndrome, something I'm sure you're aware of, veterans suffer from it a lot. I did not think I was good enough to do that. I did not think I was good enough to be there. I didn't think I was smart enough. I finished in the top third of my class and the confidence that gave me. I know now, I know now that I can do anything I want to do. So with the business, I am, I'm, it's been September will be one year that I've been in business by myself. I have four employees right now. I just hired three more last week to help me. The, the, the demand is so high mm-hmm. with what I'm doing that I had to bring in four additional people, including uh, Shana, uh, my, my ex-wife. She's helping significantly. And I had to hire a couple more trainers. And it's just a beautiful program. Oh, I work good with teaching dogs how to communicate. I have a 16-word vocabulary list that I teach on. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things that I'm doing more than anything else is actually helping dogs overcome anxiety and fear. Mm-hmm. Something I have a lot of experience with. And you mentioned dogs in COVID. So what happened with COVID, people, of course, people were inside. They weren't going anywhere. They wanted companionship. So they would go get a dog. And so this dog came into their house and they got used to their mom or dad being there all the time and, and having their attention all the time. And then the world opened back up and mom and dad went back to work. And that right. dog, they're a pack animal sitting there with no one. And the anxiety that came along with that mm-hmm. was severe. It was severe. We, I've seen a lot of cases that, that lead from anxiety to fear to actual aggression. And so that's kind of one of the things I'm working at is introducing these dogs to the world in a way that they understand new things aren't scary. They're just new. Right. In a lot of my experiences, both personally and from law school, <laughs> directly helped me do that. And so while I may not be doing exactly what you guys had planned as far as your financial thing, uh, financial investment, I feel very successful with what I've done. Uh, I am absolutely living my passion. I and love that's, that's, that's my work every day. 
that's really what we want to see. And, and, it, and to me, it doesn't matter. As long as you're happy, you're successful, you're making a living and that you're doing that. And, and I got to tell you this great story about my old dog, Buddy, Chocolate Lab. My three sons were in the Rangers and getting deployed very frequently. And many times, both, at least two, were over there, there at the same time. And, and I it creates a lot of anxiety for for mom and dad. And Absolutely. what I found is that my wife, Peggy, she handled it differently than I did. She had her tricks that she would use to get through the day. And of course we couldn't communicate with them. My, what helped me is I'd get up very early with buddy and throw him in the, in the truck and we'd go down to our, we have a huge park with a big walking trail around it. I go down every morning with him. And he would, he could smell a tennis ball or a baseball hundred yards away. And he'd jump in the bushes and dig around. He'd see his tail wagging. It was hysterical. And he always made me laugh in the morning. And that started my day off right. So I'm down there one day and I'm walking around and I didn't have him on the leash. And of course, nobody's in the park that early. It's light, but it's just mm -hmm. daylight breaking. And uh, come around and, and there's a uh, animal control officer who's a sheriff, basically a deputy sheriff. He's got the gun. He's got the whole thing. And he said, excuse me, sir, is that your dog? And I said, yeah, that's my dog. And he said, I see you don't have him on the leash and we have a leash law here. And, and I said, well, I had him on the leash for a little while, but I said, I let him off. And he said, yeah, I was watching. And so he's obviously there because somebody complained about a dog on the leash. Okay. And I said, okay, write the ticket. And he said, what? And I said, write the damn ticket. I said, I don't want to talk to you. Just write the ticket. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, I was getting mad and, and I wasn't going to go off. I just said, I'm, I don't have time to sit here and talk anymore. Right. If you're going to write me a ticket, write the ticket. And he said, why are you so angry? And I said, well, I have three sons in the Rangers. Two of them are currently deployed in Afghanistan. And I said, I'll come down here to try and limit my stress during the day. And the dog is the big part of that treatment for me, if you want to look at it like that. And he, he looked at me and he said, this ticket is costs. And I said, I don't care. Write the ticket. <laughs> and he says, well, it's $200. And I said, I don't care. Now I'm getting, just get it over with, man. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, Mr. Cochran, I'm going to, I'm going to let you slide on this one, but please, when you come back down, keep him on the leash. And old buddy was, he was my, he was my therapy during those really kind of dark days for parents. It's people often forget or don't understand that when you guys are deployed, your parents go through a lot of stuff too. Not as obviously not as traumatic as what you guys do, but here our kids are over there and we don't know if they're coming home. Mm -hmm. And so that's my dog story, old buddy. He died a couple of years later and I, I was sick. I'm so used to coming home to a dog. It's tough. And I lost, and lost one this year and I've lost one. I've lost one. Yeah. Year, yeah. And, and you're right. Dogs are there. Yeah. I put the word out and somebody called and said, we've got this one-year-old chocolate lab, AKC, all that stuff, shots, mm -hmm. chipped, everything else. The guy has to move and he can't take the dog. I went up there the next day and brought the next one home. Good. And, that, and she's still with us, Jody. She got kind of old, Good. 13. But no, I can, you can't underestimate the healing, loving power of a dog or a cat or 
a pet that mm-hmm. recognizes who you are, that shows you affection and allows you to show them affection. It's, it is, it's good for the soul. Now, I'm not saying it's for everybody, but I've had dogs all my life and I, I don't know what I'd do without one. And what these dogs are capable of still astonish oh, every day. I, they are therapy. They, the more that I work with them, the more, I guess, kind of in tune I become with, with their, in partic- with their particular intelligence. And they are very intelligent creatures. Yeah. They've been evolving next alongside of us for thousands and thousands of years. And they, they're very unique creatures. And by that, they're unique as a, a species, but each one of them are very unique in and of themselves. And if you can take care of them, it's not, I think the average cost per year for a dog um, is something like 900 to to $1,000. Vet bills, food, all the other stuff. Uh, so there is an expense factor there. Mm-hmm. There's also, though, a, a tremendous amount of dogs that are available for rescue uh, versus going out and getting a puppy. Um, and there's you a- talk about um, actually asked where kind of where this is going. Uh, and that's one of the options that we have right now, actually, mm-hmm. is we're looking at uh, forming a 501c3 and working with my, our local humane society, a couple of them. We've got talks with a few of them. And mm-hmm. so some of the, they're, they're overcrowded. The, the humane societies just are, are overworked. They're overbooked. And so our plan is to sort of 501c3, take donations and grants and other monies and take these dogs that have been sitting in the shelter for a little while, bring them into my home, train them, get them very trained to where they're more, more adoptable and send them out. So instead of going to a shelter and you say, well, okay, this dog is cute. I like him. Let's take him. Where when they come into our home, you'll have a full two pages worth of this is who this dog is. Mm-hmm. These are all tasks that he knows. This is the, the positive qualities of this dog. These are the negative qualities of this dog and really help the opportunity for some of these dogs to get adopted. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you the a name of a good friend of ours, a good friend and supporter of Sentinels who has a, a very well-funded foundation that deals with spaying and neutering dogs, cats, and absolutely repurposing and and humane treatment. A really good guy. So when we get off, we'll we'll do that on a sidebar, but I think he can be of help to you. That would be fantastic. Yes, sir. We're always trying to use our network. Yeah, and and y'all have the last one. That's what I was saying at the beginning of this. The resources you guys have at your fingertips are immense. I I, I, I talk about all the time. I still have both professors and students at LSU Law that I talked to in, in LSU main campus. Right. And I, I pushed you guys, I pushed this program consistently. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah. I, I likely would not have gotten through law school without it. Uh, I, I really don't think so. Financially, there was, obviously financially, there was a huge burden. One, um, one of our Sentinels told me, uh, John Walding, I think you may have met him, John Ray, Wayne Walding, uh, uh, Green Beret. Um, he, he said, the biggest thing that Sentinels did for me, yes, the financial help was, it took a little burden off me so I could concentrate on what I mean, getting, getting his business going, was that you believed in me. And he yeah. said, that helped me with my confidence. And so confidence, you just hit on it, is it's in you. One of our other Sentinels, John Arroyo, who was shot at Fort Hood, he said, we all have it inside of us. He says, it's like a blacksmith. You take the metal, the piece of metal in the hot coals and you pound on it and pound on it and make it stronger and stronger. 
And so we all get pounded on at some point, and, but it does, struggles, does make us stronger and it forges us. But he said the basic components of that steel is in everybody. You just have to, you got to work at it. You know, there's no free lunch out there, even for a wounded veteran. You are absolutely right. Yeah. All right. So we got, we, we got a clear understanding where you're going and that we're here anytime to help. I will, uh, of course, introduce you to this good friend of ours who yes. you'll immediately recognize the company he runs. And I'm just, I'm just extremely proud of you, of course, and I'm proud of all the people on our military and all of our veterans. The good things that you do when you come back to our community are, it's hard to put a, a measure on them. It's a huge value. And I think that you're a great example of that, Chris. So I'm, I'm very proud of you. Thank you very much. It's a lot. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, okay. This is Mike Conklin at U.S. Air Force Chris Lammy signing off for today. Thank you very much for listening. Please share this podcast with your friends and family. Teach your children well. It's never too late to teach your children about the service and sacrifice that our military makes to keep us free and to maintain our quality of life.